Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. Unusually, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar on this Friday evening. How are you doing, Ash? I'm really good, Michael. How are you? Very well. Tell us about the, the swag you're wearing. Well, this is a new piece of Navara merch, the Hey Landlord's Cap, which has been directly inspired by having to listen to Michael Kvetch day in, day out. You can find it on shop.navaramedia.com. And I will say one thing, which is I have a theory that all of humanity broadly falls into one of two categories. You're either someone where all sunglasses look good on you or you're somebody where like all hats look good on you. Now, I don't have a sunglasses face. I find it really difficult to wear sunglasses. And if you're part of Team Hat Gang, thoroughly recommend you getting this one. The Hate Tories sunglasses are coming out next summer. So wait for those if you are uh, Team Sunglasses. Tonight we are talking about the Tories fleeing Sunak's sinking ship. Um, the latest from Kanye West. I'm sure you have seen some of that on Twitter already. Um, and we're talking about the crisis in the ambulance service and a very, very unconvincing defense of Lady Susan Hussey, who we've all come to, to know just, just this week. Labour have held the city of Chester in the first by-election since Rishi Sunak became prime minister. The seat became vacant after Labour MP Chris Matherson resigned following allegations of sexual misconduct towards a junior member of staff. It's now been won by Samantha Dixon, a local councillor in the city. She gave this speech when the results were announced. The people of Chester have sent a clear message to the Conservative government. They have said unreservedly that Rishi Sunak's Conservatives no longer have a mandate to govern. His government is on borrowed times. Dixon could well be right. The result in Chester was pretty definitive. She won 61% of the vote. That's up from 50% in the 2019 election. And she almost doubled Labour's majority. For the Tories, it was the worst result they've had in the constituency since 1832, with their candidate getting only 22% of the votes. So should the Tories be worried? Professor of Politics John Curtis appeared on Radio 4's Today programme, where he gave this assessment of the result. With the possible exception of the Middlesbrough by-election of 2012, you know, this is the best performance by Labour, the biggest swing from Conservative to Labour in any by-election since David Cameron first walked through the door of 10 Downing Street. So that's one indication that Labour are in a stronger position than they've been at any previous point when they've been try trying to challenge the Conservatives over the last dozen years. The other comparison yeah. we can make is with some of those kinds of by-elections in the Parliament of 1992 to 1997, which, of course, is the Parliament that eventually led to a Conservative defeat of a fairly substantial proportions. And the swing here in this constituency of 13 points is very much in line with the average swing in seats Labour were defending in that Parliament. It was of the order of 12%. So on both those tests, certainly the claim of the opinion polls that Labour are ahead, they're well ahead, they're about 20 points ahead, is probably confirmed by the result of this by-election. Is it an election-winning or majority-delivering scale of swing? Oh, yeah, sure. Now, look, if, if a 13-point swing to uh, Labour since the la la last election, it wouldn't produce a, an enormous Labour majority, 
but it would uh, almost undoubtedly be enough to produce a, a, a Labour overall majority. But of course, we should be very, very careful of simply taking the swings in by-elections and extrapolating through to general elections. Yeah, I think the course. crucial point is, if we compare this, this by-election performance with comparable previous by-elections, it is consistent with the claim that A, Labour are in a stronger position than they've ever been in the last 12 years, and B, that the performance is consistent with what happened the last time uh, we had a parliament which ended in a, the defeat of a Conservative government. Understood. Rishi Sunak is being reminded by the voters of Chester he's got quite a lot of work to do to get his party back in a position where he might uh, consider the prospect of the Conservatives winning the next general election. Curtis also said that the result for the Tories wasn't as bad as it would have been if the by-election had happened while Liz Truss was still in charge. But you're not as bad as Liz Truss probably isn't the legacy Sunak is looking for. Labour, though, aren't taking anything for granted. This was Shadow Trade Secretary Nick Thomas-Simmons on Sky News. The result in Chester is a, a landslide result. It's a resounding result that points to a majority Labour government. But we are not in any sense complacent. We know the job there is to do to continue winning the trust of the British people. That is what we are going to continue to do right up to the day of the next general election. But huge congratulations to Samantha Dixon, our excellent candidate up there in Chester. Uh, and huge thanks to all the team on the ground who delivered that important result. And it is as well a real message to the Prime Minister and to the Conservatives that at the moment they are in government on borrowed time. In another indication that Tory MPs are starting to feel which way the wind is blowing, a number of them have decided not to stand in the next general election. The party has given MPs until December 5th to decide whether they'll commit to contesting an election in 2024. And the latest to jump ship is Shadid Javid, who has held 10 ministerial posts since 2012. Here's his resignation letter posted on social media. So it says, I am writing to inform you that I have decided not to stand at the next general election as the Conservative Party candidate for Bromsgrove. While that election is not required to be held for two more years, the Conservative Party has asked MPs to confirm their intentions at this stage to enable preparations for the campaign, especially in light of various boundary changes. This has accelerated my decision making. It has been a decision I have wrestled with for some time, but I have ultimately concluded not to stand again for what would be my fifth election. Obviously, he doesn't mention that he's you know, confirmed this decision after they've had a catastrophic by-election result. But there we are. Apparently, he's not in a particularly he's not in a swing seat, so he probably would have kept his position. Lots of talk about the fact that you know he's still relatively young. I think he's fifty-three or thereabouts, so it's quite young um, to resign when you've got a, a storied career as he does. David joins a slew of other Tory MPs who won't be standing again next time around. They include Dehenna Davidson, who in 2019 became the first ever Conservative MP for Bishop Auckland in County Durham. There's also William Ragg. He's currently vice chair of the 1922 committee, and he's been a vocal critic of Conservative government since Boris Johnson's 2019 win. And Chris Skidmore is another. He's a former university's minister. His constituency of Kingswood in southwest England is going to disappear as a result of new boundary rules. Also quitting is former Work and Pension Secretary Chloe Smith. She's been MP for North Norwich since 2009. 13 Tory MPs have so far publicly announced that they won't contest the next election, but given the polls, that number is likely to grow. 
a recent article in The Times reported this. With Conservative campaign headquarters giving sitting MPs a deadline of December the 5th to decide whether to stand again, one MP said that they expected as many as 80 to bow up. They predicted a generational turnover, saying that even Tory MPs in some winnable seats would step down if it looked like the party would lose power. So I suppose Sajid Javid, someone who fits into that category. Ash, lots of comment about lots of young MPs sort of deciding they don't want to be MPs anymore. Is this just because they think the Tories are going to win? Is it because being an MP has become so unpleasant? Is it because they could make more money elsewhere? <laughs> I mean, what's your what, what's I mean, your analysis of what we're seeing? What's going on? I think it tells you one thing, which is that when an MP tells you that they've gotten into their profession because of their commitment to their constituency, how dedicated they are to public service, more often than not, that's absolute horseshit. Sajid Javid really should be entering the prime of his political career in terms of age. Dehenna Davidson has been an MP for about five minutes. The reason why uh, you're seeing this exodus is because they don't want to endure the indignity of a bruising conservative loss. I mean, Dehenna Davidson would probably lose her seat. But remember what happened in 1997. The phrase, you know, were you awake for when Portillo lost his seat became the stuff of of political legends, really. And I think that there are lots of MPs going, you know, I don't fancy being the next Michael Portillo. I also think that there's an interesting judgment being made here by CCHQ, which is, do you absorb the flurry of MPs declining to stand with quite some time before the election? And then the hope is that the public forgets all about that. Or do you risk it and you see if the polls recover and then you have a cutoff date, which is a bit closer to the 2024 general election? They've clearly gone for do it earlier, absorb it now, because maybe the polls won't get better. Maybe the economic situation will mean that their popularity tanks even further. So I think that that tells you something about what CCHQ is thinking about their election chances, and also what the journey up to that point might look like. I still find it difficult to understand like the motivation of conservative MPs. I mean, it's, I suppose it shows the lack of my imagination. I'm just like, someone like Sajid Javid clearly can make a lot more money in the private sector than he is doing as an MP. And I suppose he just thinks if he's not going to get the top job, if he's not going to be prime minister, I think he's probably seen that, you know, the Tory party as it's currently constituted is not going to elect him as, as a prime minister. What's the point in continuing? And I think there is something very telling about that. Because I mean, if you were, you know, if I was an MP, I'd be very ideologically motivated. I'd be like, I am staying here because I want to, you know, it's difficult to get this seat. If I were to leave, someone with different politics would get in my seat and I want to push forward the things I believe in. Maybe Sajid Javid really does believe in something, but I feel like if you are that sort of Tory, then the moment that sort of like you've ticked all the boxes, you know, you don't think you're going to get a promotion higher than you have already had. Um, why? Why continue? Do you, I mean, can you can you contribute anything more in sort of the the? Do you have any more empathy towards what he might be thinking? Can you work out the psychology of Sajid Javid that I am unable to to do? Well, I suppose I'm saying this is this is clear. This is what's happening. But I mean, why why don't yeah, they all I just mean, quit? I suppose. <laughs> I mean, look, I, th I think you're probably right. I mean, look, there might be some personal reasons involved of you're having to negotiate with your family of how much time you're spending away from 
from them um it's a really demanding job it's it's a vocation it takes up all your time you're constantly under surveillance and scrutiny by the media and there might be a judgment of well okay it was worth it when you had a shot at becoming the prime minister it was worth it when you were chancellor of the exchequer or health secretary or home secretary or business secretary but it's absolutely not going to be worth it if you're just a backbencher in opposition that's that's not worth it at all so it might be that kind of judgment which i think is a combination of what you're saying the personal ambition angle but also how that intersects with what kind of life you want to lead and bear in mind Sajid Javid you know he he made an awful lot of money during the banking crisis i believe it was for uh, JP Morgan i think he entered parliament in 2010 under a coalition government and since then he has been promoted to some of the highest offices in the land like i said it included Home Secretary and Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's a pretty gilded political career. He's never really had to sit it out in the hard times. And why would he want to start now? Tom Hathaway of Atena, it's great seeing the Tories fall apart, but a Starmer government is a loss for the left. I mean, compared to what alternative, I suppose. Ash, I want to throw that to you briefly. Is a Starmer government a loss for the left? I'd say yes and no. The yes would be that Starmer would have come to power because he ran a deceptive campaign where he appeared much more left-wing than he was and then subsequently abandoned an awful lot of those pledges. It would be a loss for the left because he and his leadership team have systematically marginalised the left within the party to try and stop them from wielding any kind of influence at all. There are pledges that he has abandoned or indeed watered down, most notably around nationalisation, but also freedom of movement. So in all those regards, then yes, it would be a loss for the left. But the reason why I'm also saying no is because if you take a look at the climate policy that Labour had to come out with conference just this year, that is a fairly good policy, fairly ambitious when it comes to electricity being generated from renewables. That's something which I would say is a good policy and it wouldn't be the case that they were ha- they were forced to come out with something like that had it not been from agitation by the extra parliamentary left, the strength of the climate movement, the relationship that Ed Miliband in particular has to that climate movement. So look, I'm not going to be one of those people who sits here and goes, well, because the Tories are so awful, what you do is you give up any right to be critical of Labour. And I'm not even saying that because the Tories are so awful, you have a moral obligation to vote Labour. I actually think that nobody is owed your vote and they should have to fucking work for it. But the thing I am saying is that I think there can be a little bit of defeatism where you look at all the ways of being punched in the head, very understandably, but you don't realise that they're doing it on ground that you've gained in the first place. That makes sense. We have already mentioned the hat on sale at Navarra Media because we're coming up to Christmas. Before we move on to our next story, I'd like to talk about the new stock in the Navarra merch store just in time, as I say, for Christmas. Now, we've got some new colorways of our t shirts in the shop at the minute. If you fancy picking one up for you or a loved one or a friend, a family member, then you can head to shop.navarramedia.com. God, we all looked so much nicer in the middle of summer. Why well, you should always do photo shoots in August, never in December. And otherwise, you'd never sell anything. Straight on. Kanye West has for weeks been talking about Jewish conspiracies and saying threatening things about Jews. 
Now on the Alex Jones show, the rapper's descent into vicious anti-Semitism has reached perhaps its logical conclusion. A lot of times in media, they want to single out one person and burn them to the core. That is a Zionist approach. And they're asking me to use that same approach. Well, hey, don't say all people, just say specifically the businessmen. And then I go on Lex Freeman and I say who it's specifically, and that's still not enough. They're still taking it too far. Everyone knows and agrees now that it's like a reverse version of American History X, the scene when they put the guy's head against the curve and kick the back of it. And now people are like, wait a second, the, the so-called crime doesn't deserve the punishment. What did I, I thought? That's right. You're not Hitler. You're not a Nazi. You don't deserve to be called that and demonized. Well, I, I, see, I, I see good things about Hitler also. The Jew, I love everyone. And Jewish people are not going to tell me, you can love, um, you know, us. And you can love what we're doing to you with the contracts. And you can love what we're, you know, what we're pushing with the pornography. But this guy that invented highways, invented the very microphone that I use as a musician, you can't say out loud that this person ever did anything good. And I'm done with that. I'm done with the classifications. Every human being has something of value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. Yi went on to say, quote, I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. The Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that. And Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities. Now, he was appearing on the Alex Jones show. Obviously, Alex Jones, a, a conspiracy theorist himself, with a longtime Holocaust denier called Nick Fuentes. Ash, Kanye, one of the world's most famous recording artists, millions of followers, He's now going on TV shows, well, you know, internet TV shows, explicitly praising Hitler. What can we possibly say about this? First thing to say is that this is something which has got the potential to cause real harm, either in terms of having a stochastic impact, which is because you put out messages which demonize, marginalize, encourage hate against other groups or mainstream violent ideologies, you make it more likely that people are going to act on that way of thinking either by abusing, harassing, or even violently targeting a member of a minority group. So I think that that's the first thing to say, which is regardless of where the causality falls in terms of he's totally in control of all of his actions or he's completely out of control of all of his actions, the impact of that could be something which is really, really worrying. I also think that there's something which is particularly damaging because Kanye West has had this incredibly contradictory career in so many ways. On the one hand, he's someone who has consistently disrespected Black women in particular. He said some absolutely dreadful things about Amber Rose and nobody really batted an eye when the misogyny was directed at black women. But particularly in his early work and in the earlier portion of his career, he's someone who is seen to have really stood up for black people. You heard references on all of his early albums about his family's involvement in desegregation and the civil rights movement. That was, of course, that hugely viral moment where during a Hurricane Katrina telethon, he said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And so the thing that worries me is that Kanye West directing racist hatred at Jewish people, but 
dressing it up in the way that anti-Semitism almost always is dressed up by saying, and these are the people who hold the real power. These are the people who've got their, you know, their foot on your necks is that that takes the place of an actually anti-racist analysis of how imbalances of power in society actually function. And I think that most people, most people who've listened to his music, most people who are people of color have enough good sense to see Kanye West's diatribes for exactly what they are. But what worries me is that because he is someone who's created this body of work that people very much love, his fame exerts this almost gravitational pull by itself, even if it's a minority, even if it's a tiny minority of people who choose to believe him when he dresses up anti-Semitism as some kind of advocacy for the black community. I think that is something which can have a really detrimental impact on on race relations. There's also people in the comments, unsurprisingly, sort of discussing mental health, sort of saying he needs to take his meds or he's off his meds, and then people saying, let's stop using mental health as an excuse. I mean, where do you stand on this? I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. The thing that is going on here is someone is going and praising Hitler with a massive platform that's incredibly dangerous, painful. Anyone platforming this guy is a complete asshole. This is incredibly dangerous. At the same time, it's become a bit taboo to say, well, he is clearly having a mental health episode because people think that is to excuse it. But I mean, he he has, I know he 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 now says he was falsely diagnosed with bipolar. Much of the way he's behaving does sort of seem consistent with some symptoms of, of a manic episode. How how do we sort of navigate these issues from your perspective? What do you think now? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know Kanye West and I also don't have a background in treating mental health issues. So those are two really important things to say, which is I'm coming at this from the same position as everybody else, which is I can only react to things that I see and make connections to other things that I know. I think that there is a impulse to say, well, mental health plays no role in what's going on because what people are scared of is stigmatizing people with mental health issues. And I really understand that impulse. And as as impulses go, that's a kind of laudable one. But I do think that it's overly simplistic because the point about mental health issues is that they can make you do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do or they can amplify certain behaviors they can make certain aspects of your personality much worse they can interact with aspects of your personality and your belief system and again take them to the scale or extremity that wouldn't have been the case if you didn't have mental health issues and i think it's quite plain to see when you watch the alex jones appearance that he did from the way in which he's talking, it's just this torrent of words falling over each other. That was that really bizarre moment where he's trying to do like a net in Yahoo pun and, and pulls out a net. It, it really did remind me of a lot of people who I've known in my life, who I love very, very much of the manner of speaking when they're in a manic, when they're in a manic episode. The thing to also point out is that mental health diagnoses can also be really complex. And I've got no idea how Kanye's might have evolved or what it actually is. But, you know, again, someone who I know very well, who I love very much, their mental health issues went on a journey, which started out as a kind of almost straightforward bipolar diagnosis. And then through the years became a lot more complex and, you know, included paranoid schizophrenia. And so I think that it's both things at once, which is, yes, he 
clearly holds racist and hateful opinions that he's expressing. And those are opinions which exist amongst people who don't have any mental health issues at all. But that's also something which can interact with mental health issues. And when you are then more disposed to behave in a volatile way or more disposed to paranoid forms of thinking, which Kanye at the moment clearly is. He talked about, you know, his kids being replaced with fake children, you know, his children being kidnapped so that he couldn't see them, things of that nature. I think that tells you that mental health issues are playing a kind of role here. The thing that I'd say in terms of who who has a kind of unequivocal responsibility and uncomplicated responsibility are all of the far-right grifters from Tucker Carlson to Candace Owens to Nick Fuentes to, you know, Milo, who saw an opportunity to use Kanye, his fame, his clout to mainstream their own hateful ideology. And then what he did is because he doesn't have, for whatever reason, the kind of filter that they do where they can keep doing the plausible deniability Charleston where they walk up to the line of endorsing Nazism and then walking back away from it. You know, Kanye West just just runs straight over that line. And there are people who I think are exploiting someone who was very, very clearly unwell. And why there might be quite a wide range of differences about to what extent is Kanye West responsible for his own actions here. You know, I think that Tucker Carlson editing out the anti-Semitic portions of his interview with Kanye to make him appear as more of a straightforward cancel culture targeted by the liberal elites figure that that tells you something about what their intentions for him have been in terms of using him as as a hammer on the Overton window. I mean, look, he's anti-Semitic. He he's anti-Semitic. He hates Jews and he's being anti-Semitic. We should be very, very clear about that. Do those beliefs have anything to do with mental health? Quite possibly. You know, because I think some people think, oh, well, he's just expressing what he's always really thought. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, one feature of kind of, you know, paranoid delusions can be drawing connections where they don't exist and feeling like everyone is out to get you. And if you listen to sort of his other comments, he's sort of, he thinks he was misdiagnosed as bipolar by a Jewish doctor who then told a Jewish media person, and it, this was all because of a Jew, you know, he, all of these completely disconnected things in his life, he's connecting in this weird conspiracy that he is the center of. And I, I don't think that is, you know, alien to certain, you know, mental health difficulties. Of course, that doesn't excuse it, but I think it's odd to sort of not mention that. And in a way, actually, I think it's, it, it can be instructive, right? Because what happened? You've got someone who in a way, he's vulnerable. In a way, he's one of the richest people in the world. But, you know, he, he he's in a difficult mental state. And then you have these right-wing grifters, complete ideologues, exploiting that. I suppose my question for you, Ash, is, is this damaging for the people who I think have been exploiting him? So that, uh, that could be the, I mean, Nick Fuentes was openly a Holocaust denier anyway. But if you've got the sort of other people who were trying to stay on one side of acceptability, I mean, we could even say Donald Trump there. I mean, obviously, he hasn't tried particularly hard to stay on one side of acceptability. But you've got Trump's, even Elon Musk, we could say now, people who were batting for Kanye West. And now, literally, he's come out and said he likes Hitler. Are they going to be worried about this? Or are they still, you know, loving all the, the clicks and, and, and that they're suddenly relevant again? I think in terms of the position they now have within the mainstream right, no, it's not going to damage them because what they can do is what they are doing, 
which is distance themselves from Kanye West, say, oh no, that's really disgusting. Kanye, you've gone too far. That's something that Elon Musk was doing. And then it makes them look a lot more reasonable by comparison. I think maybe even Marjorie Taylor Greene disavowed Kanye West's comments, which doesn't tell you very much about Marjorie Taylor Greene, but can create the appearance of being more reasonable. So I actually think that the extremity of Kanye West and the fact that many of these figures will be able to disavow him creates a a problem. It makes them look more reasonable than they are. So I think that that's the real danger. Where I think it can be damaging is that you have seen a bit of a backlash from, you know, deeply racist, deeply anti-Semitic, misogynistic, far-right activists online going, what do you mean Kanye's wrong? He's totally right. I can't believe that you'd, you know, betray the cause like this by, by throwing him under the bus. So that there is an element to which that core of their support, I think, you know, could almost be a little bit turned off. But I think that if the white nationalist right kind of act as one in this instance, it'll be Kanye who's thrown under the bus and their own careers left intact. Does going to these extremes sort of completely delegitimize everything they've been saying? I mean, obviously, to us, everything these people have been saying was delegitimized a long, long time ago, but they were trying to skirt around some of the implications of what they've been saying. You know, you you never see um, Tucker Carlson, you know, on Fox News saying Hitler was a good guy, right? Never say that. So does someone they've associated with saying all of this delegitimize them or does it just shift the Overton window even further to the right? And I think that's what, you know, the question which will be on many people's lips. Um, And of course, solidarity with any Jewish people who are watching the most famous recording artist in the world or one of the most famous recording artists in the world go on TV and literally praise Hitler. I mean, that must just be phenomenally painful. So we do need to remember that whilst we're also sort of discussing the causes of of what is happening here. Let's go straight on to our next story. The issue of racial abuse at Buckingham Palace came up on Question Time this week, and a GB News host was on hand to minimise what happened. I think it was definitely a very clumsy and surprisingly crass comment for someone who spent their life uh, doing these sort of events. But on the other hand, I think it's a bit sad that we live in a sort of society where an 83-year-old woman with 60 years of public service behind her can just be sort of cancelled for one misspeak. And my heart really goes out to Ngozi Fulani because it sounds like a horrible experience and I can't quite understand how it happened like that. Um, But I think that everyone who knows Lady Susan Hussey says that she's not in any way racist. She's a very kind-hearted woman. And the rest of her life is going to be blighted by that incident. So I worry a bit about the sort of cancel culture angle of this whole story, but that's not in any way to undermine what Ngozi Fulani went through, because it does sound like a horrible experience. Now, let's just remind ourselves of what Lady Hussey, who is not, you know, according to her friends and according to uh, Olivia Hutley, not in any way racist, um, let's see what she said, which was so crass and clumsy, her misspeaking. So this is the account of Ngozi Fulani, which, as far as I can tell, no one from the palace has sort of denied or pushed back against. So here we've got Hussey says, where are you from? Fulani says, sister space. Hussey, no, where do you come from? Fulani, we're based in Hackney. No, what part of Africa are you from? Fulani, I don't know. They didn't leave any records. Hussey, well, you must know where you're from. I spent time in France. Where are you from? Fulani, here, UK. Hussey, no, but what nationality are you? Fulani, I am born here and am British. 
Then Hasti says, no, but where do you really come from? Where do your people come from? Fulani, my people, lady, what is this? Hasti, oh, I can see I'm going to have a challenge getting you to say where you're from. When did you first come here? Fulani, lady, I am a British national. My parents came here in the 50s when... And then Hasti says, oh, I knew we'd get there in the end. You're Caribbean. And then Fulani says, no, I am of African heritage, Caribbean descent and British nationality. Hasti says, oh, so you're from... Now, that's the account of Ngozi Fulani. There were three witnesses or two other witnesses, sorry, they've all sort of backed that up. And as I say, I don't think anyone from the palace seems to be pushing back against that. So to call that a misspeak from someone who couldn't possibly be racist seems to me a little bit naive, to say the least. I mean, that's probably being a bit too kind, isn't it? On the bright side, not many in the Question Time audience agreed with Olivia Utley. And the one guy who spoke in her favour didn't do her any favours. Clearly, no one is saying that what Susan Hussey said was in any way acceptable. But some, no one's taking the view that you're taking, which maybe is that maybe she shouldn't have, have gone. Is anyone in the audience agreeing with Olivia about that? OK, let's just hear from a couple of you. Yes, the man there in the blue sweater, and then I'll come to you. Um, yeah, I, I agree entirely there that I, I don't think it was, it's taken as a racist comment. Many, many years you ago... You don't think it should be taken as a racist no, comment? No, I don't. I don't I well, think even it was, though the woman hearing it very much took yes, it like that. Yes, and that's one side of the story, uh, Fiona. Many, many years ago, I was in a, a, a room when King Charles came in, and I was wearing a different regimental stable belt from everybody else because I was attached to the regiment. He made a beeline for me to ask why I was different. I took that as a compliment that he had the time. To, it was inquisitive. It's not, it's not necessarily a racist do you, can I, do you not think that it's a very different situation when you're white? Well, in a, in, when you're being talked to by a white person's seniority. It's, I mean, Shivana, do you want to... As someone who has continuously had that question throughout my existence, um, where are you really from? That question comes continuously. It doesn't change. It's quite often the same question. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I've, I've got to a point now where I've done a DNA test so that I can actually just go... Here you go. It's on my phone. This is where I'm from. Because it, it, because, and that's my default position because I'm bored of that conversation. I am bored of that conversation. I'm sick to death of having to justify who I am or where I come from. Because ultimately what this person is telling me is that somehow my existence in their presence is perhaps unbearable. And that's what this comes down to. And it is about people's feelings and about, but also this is to do with society. And, 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 you know, who we want to be. This is not the kind of society that we want to live in. And clearly the palace, you know, is considered that position. All right. Okay, please, I'm going to move on. We're saying that the, the palace is, is racist. It's not in any way racist. Never has been. You know, you're hearing one side of a story, one side of a conversation. If that was a serious, if it was a serious racial abuse, the first step should have been to go to the palace. Not to go on to Twitter and well, put the, it in the fairness, world. Well, I, I just say, because I'm going to move yeah. on in a bit, but the palace has accepted that these comments were unacceptable. Mm -hmm. They're in no doubt about that. Well, what would and you they, they, have, they have absolutely not defended Susan Hussey, and they've said that what Ngozi Filani went through was completely unacceptable, absolutely. and that racism is unacceptable, I, I so have, that they're, not, they're not sharing your view. I, I have no qualms with that, but I don't think it was intentional racism. Okay. Well, look, I'll leave you with your with your thought. There's thank not you. a lot of agreement, I have to say, here in the room with you, but thank you for putting your point. We want to hear all points of view. Ash, what do you think Olivia Utley was thinking when the only person in the audience to speak up in her favour was that guy? <laughs>
he sort of moved into the space that she created because when you go, oh, it's so sad and, you know, I don't think she'd have meant it like that and what a shame it is that six years of public service is now tarnished. But, you know, I do really feel for Ngozi Fulani. That's actually just a more dishonest version of what the guy in the aubergine top was saying. And, I mean, this is also why why I hate stuff like this so much because it is an invitation seemingly for white nonsense. <laughs> you know, you suddenly have a load of people are pining on an experience that they simply would never have had. Or it's something which is then taken in abstraction to the point where it's absurd. So it becomes a conversation about, well, is it always racist to ask where you're from? I rather like it when someone notices or, you know, well, couldn't you possibly mean it in a nice way and blah, blah, blah. And and it becomes abstracted from the thing that actually happened, which is first, Lady Susan Hussey physically moved Ngozi Fulani's hair away to see her name tag, which is incredibly entitled and quite dehumanizing, right? If I've not met someone before, I'm not going to reach over and touch their hair so I can see their name tag. I'd go, oh, what's your name? Or going, oh, tell you what, could you just, could you just move that so I could see how it's spelled? I wouldn't reach out and touch them. And the repeated line of questioning and the refusal to accept an answer of I'm British tells you that actually it is entirely shaped by race and racism. It's saying account for your melanin, account for your racial difference in this space, because if you don't, I will keep badgering you and keep questioning you. The, oh, well, I see I'm going to have a challenge here. Well, actually, you shouldn't have a challenge because if you have one of these fucking non-jobs where all you do is glad hand all day, you should be able to take a hint and move on. But look, there might be some people watching going, well, is it is it racist to ask someone where they're from? Within a context of a reciprocal and mutually interested conversation, no, it's not. I have had loads of really nice conversations with white people where I'm asking them about what their heritage and background is as well. And if it's within a context of mutual interest and you're both talking about families, that can be something which is really nice, really lovely, and it helps you get to a point of understanding each other better and understanding the context that you're in. But if what you do is you go up to anyone who's got even the slightest hint of a tin and you're effectively going, why are you brown? Because that's what the where, where are you really from question is. It's why are you brown? Um, then yeah, it is racist. And just because you didn't use any of the slurs doesn't mean you're off the hook. I thought that it was so disingenuous, wasn't it? That intervention from Olivia Riley, because she says sort of like, I don't actually see how this could have happened, especially given that she's done 60 years of public service. So how could she possibly have been uh, so racist? Where, where has she done these 60 years of public service? In Buckingham Palace, in the, the heart of British aristocracy. These people were the head of the British Empire, right? So, oh, I, I don't see how she could possibly have had beliefs which weren't wholly progressive. Oh, it's not much of a surprise, actually, is it? I wish she'd got challenged, do you think what happened was racist? Because this is another unfortunate, what was said was unfortunate. It was clumsy. There were misspeaks. If someone is interrogating someone about where they're from and not accepting their answer when they say, I'm from London, I'm from the UK, that is racist, right? Now, if you, you've got an 83-year-old who says, oh, where are you from? To someone. And then the person says, oh, London. They say, oh, okay, fine. Sorry, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to ask the question because you're not, you know, you can, you can see how that's inappropriate, unfortunate, you know, maybe like a, a racist microaggression, but it doesn't 
doesn't scream to me they're a racist person. But if you've got someone who's 83 that's interrogating someone about where they're from and not accepting the answer they give, then that is racism. And I, I think it's important that we can say what that is. I mean, it seems to me a little bit bizarre that the BBC got on someone from GB News, I think, specifically to make that that point, even though clearly the audience showed that it's not a particularly representative position. Let's go to our final story. Ambulance workers across England and Wales balloted to strike earlier this week. The industrial action, of course, involves pay. Ambulance workers have been offered a real terms pay cut by the Department of Health. But it's also about successive Tory cuts to the service. So what does that look like from the point of view of people who need an ambulance? Well, two audience members in this week's Question Time in Aberystwyth painted a pretty vivid picture of the state of the service. May last year, my daughter uh, had her first uh, epileptic seizure. Um, and she with, was how old? She was three. Um, awful, but you do what you do. You ring 999 uh, and the call handler was excellent. But you just got the feel that they couldn't understand why we were waiting so long. And being told, your instinct as a parent, right, okay, if it's taking long, put them in the car, take them yourself. Being told then, don't do it, because if anything happens on your head, be it. To then a few hours later being told... A few hours later? Hours, a a fair few hours, um, having a phone call from the ambulance service saying, listen, we're not going to get to you, take it yourself. A couple of weeks back, um, there was a RTA outside our house. A road traffic accident. Um, a young lady um, collapsed on the floor on the road in the middle of the road. Now, myself, my daughter and my husband went out to her. There was only her there. Um, she fitted and she she got stopped breathing. So we did CPR while I was on the phone to the emergency services. I was having direction from the emergency services telling me that there was no ambulance available, but there will be one soon. Well, even though she'd stopped breathing? She stopped breathing. So my husband and myself were, were keep, you know, doing CPR. Um, it, and, and my daughter was there. Um, I was, it got to stage that we got to 20 minutes and I was pleading and begging the call handler. And I was probably sounding very irrational at the time. Please, please come out. This lady has stopped breathing and we're trying to save her life. In the meantime, we're in the road while cars are speeding past, by the way. So we were putting our own lives at risk. Half hour before a police car turned up. When he turned up, he got out. He took over from us, although we were aiding him, helping him. He still got the call handler taking direction of what to do to save this girl's life. So, so when did an ambulance turn? It was a good nearly two hours before an ambulance turned up. I mean, the fact that you know two people in the audience had experiences as harrowing as that. I mean, you can a lot of people are going to die that don't need to die this winter because our NHS is at the point of collapse. I mean, it's it's sort of impossible to conclude anything other than that. You know, more and more people having these experiences, which just would be, you know, they would seem unbelievable just a few years ago. You know, n- now this has become the norm. I feel like any any one of these incidents could have been a news story, you know, in like 2010. And now this is just this is just the norm. This is something that thousands of people are experiencing every week. I mean, I'm I'm terrified about what's going to happen this winter. I mean, although as we, you know, we had um a nurse on last week who said don't don't be terrified of what's going to happen in the future. It's already collapsed. I mean, these these are stories which I think speak to that. Um just as harrowing as uh, what people are experiencing when, you know, they need the NHS is what ambulance crews and dispatchers are having to deal with. The Guardian recently spoke to a paramedic in the north of England who told them this. So he's called Joshua, the paramedic. I've been a paramedic since 2016, and it's absolute hell doing this job currently. 
I genuinely believe most of the public have no idea how bad the situation is. We're being pushed beyond limits, constantly having dispatchers pleading for crews to come through. A massive part of the issue is that ambulances are just sat at hospitals for hours on end. We're going to patients who have waited for 12 to 13 hours. Ambulance crews are seeing patients die day in and day out. I think to myself, God, please don't let any of my family members need an ambulance. It's terrifying. Patient safety has fallen through the floor. Paramedics can't reach them in time. There's simply not enough staff to get to those patients. If the government wanted to do something about that, they would pay paramedics properly, and then people would see it as a good job that's rewarding and consider doing a career in it. Patient safety is directly linked to pay. People are quitting at a time where staffing is below critical. The issue is absolutely systemic across the entire NHS. Staff going off sick with burnout, stress, and suicidal thoughts is endemic across the ambulance service. I feel completely burnt out currently. I've been considering calling in sick every night, every night shift this week. I don't want to come to work because you don't know what you're going to come across. It's stress beyond stress. We're finishing hours late every shift. And the government is saying you don't deserve to be paid properly. So as a paramedic, we're linking um, the crisis, the, the obvious crisis in the health service and particularly with respect to the ambulance service and the dispute which is coming up um, between the government, between the NHS and ambulance workers. Ash, it feels important to me having sort of testimonies like that on on the BBC, on a high profile show, and especially because it's, you know, it's from audience members. This is this is this is not someone that has been sought out because they have an extreme experience. This is now essentially the norm. I mean, how serious is this? It's Absolutely at breaking point. Some data which came from the GMB, which represents thousands of ambulance workers, is that a third of ambulance workers report that they've personally been involved in a delay which has resulted in the death of a patient. We've seen already before the winter flu season even truly gets underway, that there have been reports of patients dying in ambulances outside of hospitals because there aren't any beds available. And the reason why there aren't beds available is because there is a staffing crisis. You've had an exodus of staff from the NHS because of real terms falling pay. And also because the conditions that they're having to work under are more stressful, less rewarding, and they're thinking to themselves, I don't think I can do this anymore. And in the past year alone, you've seen a 25% increase in nurses leaving the service. You've seen an exodus of of, uh, GPs, and that's something which has been going on uh, since 2010 onwards. And so at every level of healthcare provision, you've got a chronic uh, problem of understaffing. And one of the things that really pisses me off is that the right are trying to co-opt many of these accounts of, you know, horrific delays or a shortage of beds and saying, oh, it's the NHS's fault. This is not an efficient system. It's because, you know, the state is unwieldy and it's clumsy and it can't be trusted to manage properly. Well, look, the reason why there are fewer managers in the NHS is also because its budgets were cut to ribbons following the 2010 Conservative government. You've had NHS reforms like the one spearheaded by Andrew Lansley, which said, okay, well, what we're going to do is protect a certain number of clinical staff, but get rid of administration. So instead of that, clinical staff have got to do all that kind of work. 
And so this is this is the direct result of Tory mismanagement. But now what they're turning around and saying like, oh, well, is it a bottomless pit? Does the NHS expect just more money all the time? And the simple answer, quite frankly, is Yes, we've got a growing population. So you've got more people who are reliant on the NHS. We've also got an aging population, which means that you've got more people who are coming into to an age, which means that they're, they're going to have to, you know, have hospital care, particularly because we don't have an adequate elderly care system. So it means that it's hospitals and GPs who are having to pick up the strain of inadequate care provision. This is entirely a conservative made crisis because when you look at the waiting times you know Tony Blair Gordon Brown did an awful lot of shit stuff but quite frankly those waiting times weren't there and it's not a great mystery what the NHS needs it's better pay and more fucking staff Ash Sarkar it's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening thank you for having me Thank you, everyone, for your super chats tonight. Enjoy the football if you'll be watching it this weekend. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm, so make sure to hit subscribe. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.